Good morning. It's good to see all of you. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for coming and joining us uh, today. You all look just so lovely out there. All of you who are home joining us online, we thank you for your presence this morning as well. And we are grateful to have you tuning in with us today as well. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you've been with us, if you've been tracking with us over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we have been in this series of sermons in which uh, we've been studying uh, the last parts of, of, of what led up to the crucifixion and then also what has led up to us examining the empty tomb. You'll recall a couple of weeks back on Easter Sunday, we looked at the fact that John and Peter went to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning and they found that the tomb wasn't quite empty in the fact that there were still some grave clothes that were left there and that those clothes were were left by Jesus when he resurrected. Uh, and so we, we studied the importance of those uh, grave clothes and the necessary implications that they have upon not only those first disciples, but also on, upon us. And then last week, you'll note that we we examined uh, the life of Mary Magdalene and how it was she was changed by her interaction with Jesus and also the, the U-turn that really occurred in her life when, when she came upon the resurrected Christ who called her name and when she recognized him as who he was and, and the change that that made in her life. That was, that was the time that we spent last week. Well, this morning we're going to continue examining the post-resurrection passages that John tells us about and writes about. And, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning considering the episode that comes when, when John discusses what occurred between Jesus and, and Thomas. But before we get there, we're, we're told about Jesus appearing to all of the rest of his disciples who had gathered on that first Easter Sunday evening. And that's where we're going to begin today. And sort of to set the stage for our study this morning, we need to recognize... The, the demeanor and, and the disposition of, of those disciples, Jesus' closest friends, on that first Easter Sunday evening. You see, even though throughout the day there'd been word trickling into them that the tomb was empty. There was word trickling into them through, through women who had gone to the tomb already. And, and even through what John and Peter had already discovered, word had trickled back to them that, that the, the stone had been removed, that Jesus was even alive. And yet, and yet we, we see that there's still a prevailing sense of, of, of confusion and, and sadness and even fear that is pervading upon the mood of the disciples as they gather together on this Easter Sunday evening. There was still no sense of joy. There was still no sense of victory. Rather, they huddled together behind a locked door and they waited. And that is where we pick up with our text this morning. So begin reading with me there in verse 19 of John chapter 20. And we're speaking here of that first Sunday, that first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. 
As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they will be retained. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And truly, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy to us. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for the opportunity we have to open Your Word and to study it for ourselves. Now we pray that Your Holy Spirit would speak to us through Your Word. Soften our hearts. Speak to us that we may hear and that we may respond appropriately. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, and my goal is, as I said earlier, for us to concentrate the majority of our attention on the interaction that occurred between Jesus and Thomas. However, I do want to give you a quick summary of what we read there in verses 19 through 23, where, where John tells us that Jesus suddenly appeared to his disciples who had gathered together in this room where the, where the doors were, were locked and shut. The Greek word there can, can mean both. It's shut, but also locked. In fact, the first major heading on your outline this morning is simply this. It's Jesus and the disciples. Jesus and the disciples. And in, in summarizing this part of our passage, I want to propose for you the same outline, honestly, that I gave you last week with regard to Mary Magdalene. So if you keep good notes or if you've got your notes from last week or Maybe you've just got a good memory. If you do, it's going to be the same outline that we had last week and because I think it follows the exact same track. So therefore, what I want you to notice is just like it was with Mary Magdalene on that, that first Easter Sunday morning, so it is with the disciples on that Easter Sunday evening. And the first thing we see is that they're stricken with despair. They're stricken with despair. The most, the most powerful evidence of that lies in the fact that they are not gathered together on that Sunday evening, slapping each other on the back and saying, boy, I can't wait till Jesus shows up. They were not having a resurrection party on that Sunday evening. No, rather than experiencing joy, rather than experiencing hope, these disciples find themselves with a profound sense of gloom and they are cowering in fear because of the Jewish authorities who had arrested Jesus earlier and had had Him crucified. They're concerned that the same thing is going to happen to them. You know, I was struck by this observation from the text this week. And that is, 
Locked doors will never give you peace. Locked doors will never bring you peace. The disciples had sequestered and isolated themselves away, somehow believing that they could hide themselves from the Jewish authorities and that they could keep themselves from being, from being in danger by closing and locking the doors. But even so doing, notice that they had no peace. They had no security. Instead, the locked doors only verified their fear and continued to foment their anxiety. Brothers and sisters, locked doors will never bring you peace. Only Jesus can bring you peace. Which is exactly what happens. You see, suddenly Jesus shows up in their closed up and locked up rooms. You know, not only will locked doors not bring you peace, locked doors can't keep the Savior out either. No explanation is given to us about how Jesus unexpectedly appeared in this room, only that He did. And then He says this to them, peace be with you. Listen, only Jesus can give you peace. Only He can do that. And I would say this to you, I love how one has put it, the only way that Jesus can say peace be with you is because He says it is finished on the cross. That's the only way that peace can come to you is because He has accomplished for you on the cross everything that you needed. There's something important that we must understand here. We can only have the true and lasting peace with God and with others and even within ourselves when our faith is firmly fixed upon the crucified and resurrected Christ, which I believe explains why Jesus went on, as the Scriptures tell us here, to show them His hands and His side. You see, Jesus, Jesus wanted His disciples to be assured that He was the one who had suffered and died for them and was now alive and standing right before them. And then note with me that suddenly a transformation takes place. John says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In other words, as the next sub-point explains for you there, when Jesus showed up, just like He did with Mary Magdalene, so with the disciples, they were now surprised with delight. They had been stricken with, with despair, but now they are surprised with delight. Their emptiness and their gloom and their despair and their fear was replaced with gladness and with joy and hope. And here we see that U-turn occur in their lives. Listen, when, when Christ comes into your life, when He shows up, he replaces your despair with delight. He turns your sorrow into joy. He fills your emptiness with hope. And friends, that in a nutshell is the message of the gospel. That's exactly why Jesus said He came. In John 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. That is why Christ came. Now notice also in this section, just as we saw with Mary Magdalene, these disciples are also sent to declare. That's the third Subpoint there. They're sent to declare just as Mary Magdalene was. After once again bestowing upon them a blessing of peace, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now let me be clear about something here. When Jesus says what he does... He was not giving authority to the disciples to pronounce forgiveness of sins on their own accord. 
you will never read in the New Testament where one of the disciples said, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you of your sins. That never occurs. Rather, the reference to forgiving of sins or withholding forgiveness here is tied directly to the proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ has been crucified, buried, and is risen again. You see, to have forgiveness of sins, as we've already said, means to be at peace with God. And that peace can only come through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It can therefore be said that of those who repent of their sins and who trust in Christ that they have been forgiven of their sins while those who remain unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, well, they are left in their sins to suffer the punishment of God. Now, as I said, I believe that is a, a quick summary of that first section from verses 19 down through verse 23 of Jesus and his disciples. But I want us to move forward in the text to what John tells us next. Because you see, we come to learn that there was one disciple who was not there in that room on that first Easter Sunday evening. His name is Thomas. And it is his story that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. And that brings me to the second point on your outline. First was Jesus and the disciples. This one, unsurprisingly, is Jesus and Thomas. Now, the scriptures as a whole don't reveal a whole lot about Thomas to us. We know that he was a twin, so he had a twin brother. Uh, but that's about all we know. Nevertheless, the scriptures do provide, in fact, the Gospel of John provides us with three sort of snapshots of Thomas that give us a little bit of insight into who Thomas the man actually was. The first snapshot, you might just take a note, you can go back and read it for yourself. Actually, John tells us about in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a pretty important passage in the New Testament because it tells us about Jesus and, and, and Lazarus, his friend who had died. And you'll recall, prior to John chapter 11, Jesus had found himself in the middle of a buzzsaw in and around Jerusalem. In fact, they had, they had tried to kill Jesus. The Jewish authorities had become so incensed at what Jesus had taught that they had picked up stones to throw at him in John chapter 8. And you find that Jesus is in real trouble in and around Jerusalem. Well, by the time that we get to John chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to a more remote area on kind of beyond the Jordan River. And he'd gone there, having escaped that, that attempt to, to stone him in the area near and around Jerusalem. But then Jesus gets this word that comes to him that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. And, and Lazarus' sisters had sent word to Jesus wanting him to come. Now you'll recall Jesus stayed on a little while longer, but then he says, let's go back to Bethany. Now Bethany was a small little town right near Jerusalem, just on the outskirts. And after a couple of days, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. But his disciples are utterly shocked at what Jesus says. They can't believe it. They're gobsmacked. Why, why would you go back there, Jesus? They just tried to take your life there. You're in danger if you go back to that part of the world. Jesus told them that he was going back to do something for Lazarus. And he was going to do something for them that would, that would challenge their preconceived conceptions. And, and what he was going to do there was designed to increase their faith. And so Jesus was going back to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in effect, he was saying, come on, boys. Let's go back to where the fight is. 
We've been out here long enough. Let's go back there. And here we're introduced to Thomas. Because Thomas writes, what John tells us that Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go with him. that We may die with him. I love what John MacArthur writes about Thomas in this section. He notes that this short sentence speaks volumes about Thomas. He likens him to being sort of a pessimistic person, sort of like Eeyore of Winnie the Pooh fame. If you ever watched Eeyore, you know how he is. He, 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 can find, he can find the dark cloud in every silver lining. Doesn't matter what's going on. He can find the negative. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you are people like that. I don't know. <laughs> Thomas, let's go with him. I mean, he's going to die. We might as well go die with him. John MacArthur, though, says this. Thomas, although he was pessimistic, he was full of courage. Do you note that? You see, even though he believed their march back to Judea would likely end in Jesus' death, he was nevertheless ready to go with Jesus, even if it meant to die with him. So that's the first snapshot we get of Thomas there in John chapter 11. The next snapshot that John gives us of, of Thomas, the disciple, occurs in, a very, in another very familiar passage that you, you hear quoted. In fact, I've quoted it the last two Sundays and you hear it regularly. It is, it is one of those that comes right in the very center of what John tells us in, in, in John chapter 14. Jesus has said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Here's where Thomas shows up again. Because, because Thomas, that Jesus told this to them because he didn't want their hearts to be troubled. He told this to them so that they would be encouraged. Thomas is not encouraged. Thomas said, Jesus, we have no idea what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. And we have absolutely no idea what the way is that you're talking about. And it is to his questions that Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Now, here's what we learn about Thomas based upon that interaction. You see, it's as if he just raises his hands and he's going, I, I just, I, I'm not gullible. I'm not just going to take everything that's said. I got to ask the hard questions. You know, I, when I was in seminary, I loved guys like Thomas. Because, you know, there's some heavy, pretty heavy-duty stuff that's fed to you sometimes in seminary. And, and sometimes you don't really want to be the guy that raises your hand and goes, can you go over that again? Because I didn't get that the first time. I loved guys like Thomas. Because I benefited from their questions and I didn't have to raise my hand and ask it. Now, I will honestly say, I asked a lot of questions when I was in seminary, both all, of, all throughout my education, I've been one to ask questions. But I loved being near guys like Thomas who were also unafraid to ask questions because I benefited from the interaction that occurred. Listen, all of us benefited from what Thomas asks right here, but here's what we need to know about him. Thomas was one who was willing to ask hard questions when it was not such an easy thing to understand. He was not gullible. He didn't just take things that were said to him at, at, at face value without questioning what it was. 
So those are the first two snapshots that we get of Thomas in the Gospel of John. And what we learn is that he's typically a glass half empty sort of personality who was nevertheless strong-willed and courageous. But we also learned that far from being gullible, Thomas was one who was unafraid to ask questions. That leads us to the third snapshot that we find here in our text this morning. A snapshot that begins by telling us that, that, that Thomas was not with the rest of the group on that first Easter Sunday evening. And you might want to know why. I'd like to know why. Where was Thomas? What was he doing? Why was he not with all the others? We don't know. No answer is given. What we do know is this, though. Because he was not with the other disciples who had gathered together, Thomas missed out on a blessing. He missed out on being with those other disciples. He missed out on Jesus showing up and immediately blessing them with his peace and breathing upon them as we read earlier. Jesus had said, as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Thomas missed out on all of that. But notice that sometime later, we don't know exactly when, sometime later, later in that week, perhaps the next day, later in the week, the other ten come to Thomas and they said to him, look, we've seen the Lord. Thomas said, Unless I see in his hand the print of the nails, and unless I put my finger into the print of the nails, unless I stick my finger into the side that was speared by those Roman soldiers, I will not believe. And here we learn really the third thing we need to learn about Thomas, and that is he was a skeptic. Thomas was one who was given to doubt. That leads me to the first sub-point under this second section that I'd like for you to note. It's simply just a pair of words that I think will help describe Thomas for us. Two words that I just want you to think about here. The two words are doubt and disappointment. Doubt and disappointment. I believe these two words accurately describe Thomas. You think about it. His close friends and, and fellow disciples, who, by the way, had now been commissioned by Jesus to be his special messengers, to go out and to proclaim his resurrection. Well, Thomas, he hears their witness and he expresses complete and utter doubt and skepticism regarding their claim to having had personally seen Jesus for themselves. And why did he do that? Well, remember, Thomas is a glass half empty kind of guy. He's, he's unafraid to take a stand. He's not gullible. And therefore, his resolution is even though he knows these other guys, he had walked all throughout Jerusalem and through the, the nation of Israel with these other guys for at least a couple of years, maybe as much as three years, he had walked with them. He had served with them. He knew these other disciples well. But he's not going to be taken in and had again. Remember, he had also walked with Jesus and look what happened to Jesus. He's not going to be taken in. Thomas doubted. And it was real doubt. And it was based upon real disappointment. If we just go back, though, to that passage in John 11 that I talked to you about earlier, about Lazarus being raised from the dead, think about it. Thomas had been there when Jesus had called Lazarus out of the tomb. Thomas was a witness 
to one who had already been resurrected from the dead. According to Luke's gospel, Thomas was, was with Jesus when Jesus had interrupted a funeral procession and had raised a, a widow who, who had a, a son who had died and raised him from the dead. Thomas had been there when, when two people who were dead had come back to life. Not to mention the number of times that Thomas had been with Jesus when Jesus had spoken to a lame person and they started to walk, or a deaf person and they were able to hear, or a blind person and they were able to see. Thomas had every reason in the world to believe that which was told to him by these apostles who Jesus had sent out to declare that he had risen from the dead, yet he refused to believe. D.A. Carson, he, he proposes that Thomas likely had some real arguments with himself in the process. He proposes that his internal conversations may have gone out like this. Jesus is alive? Oh, it can't be. But the other ten are so very sure that he is. Is it possible that Jesus is alive? What would that mean? No, no. It can't be. I've got to have evidence. I'm not just going to believe this stuff unless they tell me. He can't possibly be alive. But suppose that he is. Have you ever had arguments with yourself like that or is that just me? <laughs> I mean, you, you, the thing it always is, is that when, you know, it's, it's okay to talk to yourself. It's just not okay to answer yourself. I tend to do both and then do it out loud sometimes too. So there you have that. But it's a mental wrestling match that occurs because you're really trying to examine something and understand, can I really put... I read, I read something this week. This is not my notes, so no, 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 I have no idea how long it will take. That, that, that a rope... It's one thing to have faith in a rope that you're using to tie up a box with. The real confidence you have in that rope is when you're willing to hang by it. You see, sometimes I can have the mental acuity to think about something. Yeah, I can see where that... It's something else altogether when I'm willing to put everything I got onto that and to lean on it and trust in it. That's where Thomas is. He's like, I just can't get this in my head. And no doubt his doubt is perpetuated by disappointment. My guess is, is that there are some of you in this room this morning because of the things that have happened in the past with you that you're wondering, you know, can this really be true that this preacher is talking about with regard to Jesus? Is it really true what the Bible says about Christ? I know that others believe it to be true, but, but what about all the suffering in the world that I see? What about all the things that happen that I don't have an explanation for? What about the fact that there was that time that I asked God to do something and he didn't do it the way that I thought he should? What about the fact that I'm hurt because there's somebody in the church that did that and said that thing to me or to my parents and it really scarred me? What about that? I, can I really trust a God who allows those kind of things to occur and allows that kind of pain Maybe you're here and you've got some semblance of that going on in your mind. I don't know what it is that maybe you're struggling with, but there's that wrestling match. If Jesus is who he said he is, it doesn't match up with what I've seen and what I've felt. And so how am I supposed, which one am I supposed to believe in? That's a doubt that is brought about by disappointment. I want you to notice what happened eight days later. 
John tells us that all the disciples gathered again. And this time Thomas was with them. And suddenly, once again, even though the doors are shut, Jesus suddenly is there in their midst. And he just appears. And, 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 and just as before, he says, peace be to you. And, and, and then Jesus turns his full-on attention to Thomas. You know, when, when you're the kid in the class that the teacher finally zeroes in on, they always told me in boot camp, don't ever let the company commander find out what your name is. Because as soon as he knows your name, he's, your name's going to be the one that they call. And so for boot camp's eight weeks and three days, for seven and a half weeks, my company commander didn't know my name. But then after that, it was like everything was crazy from that point forward. I think that's exactly how it was with Thomas. Jesus shows up in the room and he goes straight for Thomas. Straight to him. And he looks at him. He says, look, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. It's obvious that Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said days earlier. And remember, Thomas had said, he was unless he got to do all of those things, he wasn't going to believe that Jesus was alive. So Jesus says, come on over here and do exactly what you want to do. And then he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, I'd just love to see Thomas' face at that point. I'd just like to have seen what he looked like. Because I know I've looked that way a hundred thousand times. He's probably thinking, how did Jesus know? How did he know I said those things? Indeed, how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know what Thomas had said? How did Jesus all of a sudden end up in a locked room? I'm going to tell you how. Because he's God. He is God of very God. He knows everything. There's nothing you're going to hide from Him. You can't hide from Him in a locked room. He shows up. You can try to push Him out. You know what He's going to do? He's going to show up in your life. You can think all kinds of things and have all kinds of questions, and maybe you don't voice those questions to your group of friends. It's okay. Jesus still knows what they are, and He's going to confront you with them because He's God of very God. And he knew everything there was to know about Thomas. He knows everything there is to know about you. And I want you to know, Jesus, Jesus showed up in that upper room not to embarrass Thomas, not to frustrate Thomas. He showed up to Thomas so that he could settle the issue for Thomas. I don't want you to miss just how gracious that was for Jesus to do. You see, Jesus didn't have to do what he did here. He didn't have to show up and, and grant such grace to Thomas, but he did. He could have just said, that's it. I'm done with you. You've had every right, you've had every opportunity to, to respond to me and, and, and you're just thumbing your nose in my face and you don't believe what the apostles that I've sent out there to tell you is true. I'm done with you. Jesus didn't do that. And listen, when Jesus showed up, we don't read that Thomas ultimately did any of the things Jesus told him to do. In fact... Scholars believe that Thomas never offered to touch the Lord or put his finger in his hands or his side. He didn't have to because he knew that the testimony of the others was true. And now their testimony was his testimony. If you think about it, their testimony is, we have seen the Lord. Thomas could say the same thing. I've seen the Lord too. That leads me to the next point. And the next two words on your outline today, it's confession and conviction. Confession and conviction. Verse 28 reads, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now in light of what we read in the preceding verses, I, I think this is nothing less than an astounding admission on, 
on Thomas's part. I would have expected the first words out of his mouth would have been, Jesus, you are alive. Or, or say, whoops, I was wrong. That's not what he says. What he says is rather that he is confessing something. My Lord and my God. By confessing that Jesus Christ was his Lord, Thomas was declaring Jesus to be his master. He was declaring him to be the one who had authority over his life. By confessing that, that he was that he was God, he was confessing that he was the Messiah. He was God of very God, the one that had been promised about and the one who had come. Now that in and of itself, I want you to know, is a tremendous expression of faith. But notice that it gets even better when you really recognize the fact that Thomas is declaring, look, he is my Lord and he is my God. Don't miss that. There's the personal possessive pronoun that is being used there. In other words, Thomas is saying that he had a personal relationship with Jesus and he makes a personal confession based upon his conviction. And in response to Thomas's confession, Jesus says, Thomas, because you have seen me and have believed, blessed are those who have, you are blessed because you have seen me and believed, blessed are those who have seen and yet haven't believed, have not seen and yet believed. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is saying there that Thomas had some sort of second-class faith. I don't think Jesus is wrapping Thomas on the, on the wrist and saying, you know, you're sort of second-class here to those who later come and, and don't see me. Jesus is not saying that, that faith is based upon nothing or that's, that it's not supported by evidence. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and is the evidence of things not seen. Yet, that does not mean that faith is based on a lack of evidence. God never asks us to believe in something that is not true. Our salvation and our hope are not based upon a fable or a myth. Rather, they are based upon our conviction and the veracity of the truthfulness of the claims of those who witnessed the resurrection of the Lord themselves. Their word, their apostolic testimony is what we have in Holy Scripture. And here we graciously see that the Lord revealed Himself to Thomas in order for Thomas to become an apostolic witness just as the other disciples had become of that same truth. Thomas was now able to add his name to the group of disciples who could say, we have seen the Lord. And this becomes even more clear when we see how John concludes this chapter. In verses 30 and 31, these are extremely and very significant verses because they contain the key to understanding not only this episode, but all of what John writes. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, listen to what he says again. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. Wouldn't you love to know what some of those are? John knew that you would want to know what some of those are. He goes on saying later that even if all of them had written down, he's not even sure that the, all the books in the world could contain them all. But then he gives this, 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's what leads me to the last two words on your outline this morning. Bible and belief. 
and swap them back and forth, whichever way you want to go with it. Belief in Bible is the way I think I've got it. Belief in Bible. You see, it is here that you and I find ourselves in this story. John writes to us. He tells us that though we have never seen the Lord physically, though though we have never viewed the nail prints in His hand, though we have never shoved our finger into His side, we are still called to believe. But on what basis? Upon what basis are you and I called to believe in this gospel? Well, we are called to believe because of the historical witness that the first century believers left behind for us in the Scriptures. To refer to D.A. Carson once more, that's why John includes this episode in the Gospel account. Thomas becomes a part of the chain of evidence that attests to the truth of the resurrection. He saw and believed, and by his witness, by his confession recorded in this book, he still speaks. And by God's grace, his witness still generates faith in countless later generations who come to share his faith because of his witness to the truth. In other words, this is what I would say. John, John tells us that the things that were written here were written so that you and I might believe in Jesus and receive life everlasting. And that leads me to two very important questions that I have to ask you. The first question that I have to ask you is simply this. Do you believe the apostolic witness recording in the scriptures of Christ's death and his resurrection? Let me put it more simply. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Do you believe it? I want you to know God's word is true and it's clear. Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice for sinners just like you and just like me. He came to die in our place on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ suffered vicariously for us so that we might be forgiven of our sins, set free from the penalty of our sins and from the power of our sins owing our lives. But what I want you to know is that Jesus did not remain dead. Rather, He defeated death by rising from the grave. And the Scriptures attest to the validity of that fact. The question is, do you believe it? Or like Thomas, maybe you find yourself out there this morning and you're skeptical. Do you doubt the Bible's truthfulness? John clearly declares that the Scriptures are written so that we might believe in them. So I ask you again, do you believe? Will you believe? That leads me to the second question. The second question that is informed by this text that demands you and I ask ourselves this question is, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your God? Is He your master? Is He sovereign over your life? Is He your God? Do you worship Him and Him alone? Or are there other gods that take precedent over him? I tell you how you can take a spiritual inventory and find that out. You can ask yourself, what's the most important thing on my calendar? You can look into your financial money checkbooks and registers. What's the most important thing to me based upon where I spend my money? I'll tell you another one. When you close your eyes and you lay your head on your pillow at night, 
is God and the work that he's doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that the most important thing? Is that what pops to your mind? What pops to your mind when you close your eyes in the quiet of your time before you go to rest? I want you to know this. Is Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure is determined by where you spend your time, where you spend your money, and where your thoughts are. That's where the compass needle of your heart begins to tell you where you're pointing. And I want you to know, the question is, is, do you believe who Jesus is according to the Scriptures, and is He Lord of your life? Those are vital for every single person in this room to ask themselves. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and do you confess Him as your Lord and Savior? There are no more important questions you'll ever ask yourself than that because Romans 10 verse 9 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do not misunderstand this. Your only hope for eternal salvation is tied to this belief and this confession. Maybe you find yourself like Thomas and the other disciples before they encountered the risen Savior. And maybe you've been chasing empty dreams and empty promises. And now, now you come up empty-handed. And you find yourself disappointed and hopeless. I want you to know that the resurrected Christ graciously stands before you today, revealing Himself to you, not in a physical sense, but through the faithful and true testimony of the scriptures that is before you. And he says to you, just as he says to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus Christ offers you life and hope this morning through the victory he gave you over death. And that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. All of your hope for this life and the life to come rests upon your belief that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead to be your Savior and Lord. Do you believe it? Will you believe it? Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to know that in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song and I'm going to extend to you an invitation. And I want you to know that that invitation is simple. I'm going to invite you to come to Jesus. I invite you to, to place your, your full faith and your full trust in Him. And I'm going to invite you to believe that He lived and that He died a perfect life in order to save you from your sins. And I'm going to invite you to repent of your sins and to believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And I want to invite you to receive God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus. When we stand in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are and I want you to come down and take the hand of either Pastor Dave or Pastor Ted or myself. And if you desire to be saved, I want you to step out and I want you to come forward and I want you to let us pray with you. Perhaps you're a believer and you're here, but when you took that personal inventory just a few moments ago, 
you realize that there's some other things in your life that you've allowed to become more important to you than Christ and his gospel. Your claim may be that Jesus is your Lord and Master, but if you're honest, you've allowed other things to to sit upon the throne of your life. And if that's the case, then when we stand in just a moment, it may be that you need to come here to this altar and you need to kneel and you need to spend some time confessing your sins to the Lord. The Bible is very clear that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will find a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If the Lord has shown you areas of deficiency in your devotion to Him today, then I want you to know, just as He was to to Thomas, He is to you, being very gracious and very merciful. Do not disregard the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that in these moments in which we take this time to sing, but also time to examine our hearts, that you give us the boldness that we need to respond accordingly to your Holy Spirit. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please, this morning?